This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Fracking has been a major factor in the U.S. energy boom over the last decade or so. Even though some tout its benefits, others have raised concerns about its damaging impact on the environment, including water contamination and earthquakes. Fracking, though, could pose another risk that's been less talked about. The industry requires a lot of financing, but doesn't recoup a lot of those costs. One expert has estimated the industry's net debt in 2015 was around $200 billion. So could fracking actually be the next cause of the economic downturn in the United States? With a closer look at why there should be a greater concern around this industry, we are joined by Bethany McLean, who's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and author of the book Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany recently had an op-ed in the New York Times titled The Next Financial Crisis Lurks Underground. And also joining us is Jyoti Thotam, who is a New York Times opinion editor for business and economics. Bethany, thanks for the time today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Jyoti, great to talk to you again. Yes, thanks to t- thanks for having me again. Yeah, Bethany, so you've written about this, but what was it that really first got you interested in thinking about the impact of fracking on the U.S. economy in the first place? So I was struck by a dichotomy or a conundrum, which is that the advent of fracking really is changing the world. The headline last week hit that the U.S. is now the world's largest producer of oil, bigger than Russia and Saudi Arabia for the first time since the 1970s. And that's due to the advent of fracking, which has enabled us to produce a lot more oil than we used to. And yet this industry doesn't make money. It's on much shakier financial footing than than most people realize. And I wanted to try to resolve that. So, Jyoti, as I mentioned, these downturns do come in cycles, and it feels like right now we are well beyond the time frame for that next economic downturn. Uh, and, And it feels like there are expectations out there of a lot of people that that next downturn is not that far away at this point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, nine years into the recovery, I think uh, any economic expert and certainly any business journalist is out there kind of looking for any signs of vulnerability. And one of the things that I, I thought was so interesting about Bethany's piece and just this whole question about, you know, what really is the foundation of fracking, like how shaky is that foundation, is that you know, unlike other industries, which may also have some of these same financial issues, the energy industry is really sort of um, an underpinning of a lot of other parts of the economy. And it's the source of a lot of jobs in some places, too. So anything that kind of raises questions about that, I think is really important to at least consider. So, Bethany, off of something that Jody just said, how shaky is fracking's foundation right now because of all the debt that that is out there? Well, it depends a bit on, on what the future holds in store for us. But what I think is interesting to Giotti's point is that it's directly the rise of fracking is directly linked to the last financial crisis. In order to try to help the economy after the last after the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to record lows, and a decade of low interest rates has arguably caused a debt buildup in all sorts of areas of the economy, um, including in fracking, which because of the massive sums of capital these companies need, they wouldn't have been 
been able to raise those, that capital and afford the interest if it hadn't been for for the, what the Federal Reserve had, had had done had done with interest rates. As to how likely it is that this comes to to a bad end, it's the subject of of, of debate between bulls and bears about the industry. With bear, bulls saying that technological improvements, um, fracking in areas where the technology hadn't been used before, like the Permian Basin in Texas, um, are changing the financial foundation of this industry such that it will be on 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 better footing. Um, other people are are, are are not so sure. And I, I felt a little bit unable to resolve that debate because one thing studying this taught me was that everybody who has tried to predict the future of fracking thus far has been wrong. <laughs> and so I felt a little humbled in the face of that. You mentioned the, the, the linkage of the growth of fracking to the financial crisis, which is, it's a story that I, I don't think has been talked about enough. So let's take it back for a, a few years here and, and how exactly they were linked because, as you mentioned a second ago, the lowering of interest rates really did open the door to have a lot of this financing come forward for the companies that are doing fracking. Yep, I would say it's had three major, there have been three major impacts. One is precisely in that respect, that because this industry is so ca- capital intensive, it would have been difficult for companies to raise and afford the mammoth amounts of debt that are required. There's a great paper by a Columbia University guy that says basically these, the major cause of fracking was the Federal Reserve's low low interest rate policy. Um, but that also, the second the second impact that that had is that um, pre- um, pension funds were no longer able to earn a return in fixed income investments. And so they began to invest their enormous pots of money into private equity firms and hedge funds that invest in debt. And that has provided yet more capital um, to, the, to, to, to the fracking industry. And then the third component is that because the world has been so stagnant in terms of economic growth, fracking is at least growing. And so that's um, led to interest in this sector in the public market just because of the growth. And, and has led to an interesting growth irrespective of, of profits that might not exist in a more rational economic environment. Jyoti, how much has it really been discussed in the in the media about this linkage between the growth of fracking and, and the lowering of interest rates a decade ago? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the popular media, this is really just starting to come up. I mean, certainly the question of um, investors chasing yields uh, in this low interest rate environment, that's been that's been talked about a little bit more. We've had pieces about this as well, but I think Bethany really um, managed to sort of put all the pieces together. And you know, she's very modest about uh, you know not being willing to uh, you know sort of foresee the future. It's it's very very difficult to tell. You don't know. But one thing about um, quantitative easing about the you know the the whole program that the fed undertook after the financial crisis you know you can argue it had to be done you can argue um, that it was a good thing for the economy and it was necessary but the other thing is that we do know is at some point it has to be unwound at some point interest rates are going to rise perhaps not dramatically perhaps not quickly but eventually uh, that's going to change and when it does Somehow the economics of fracking and perhaps other industries that are also built on debt will change in some way. Um, I mean, essentially what Bethany sort of lays out is that, um, you know, we've sort of gotten used to this American economy that's sort of built on cheap oil. 
one way to think of fracking, you know, which is now a huge part of cheap oil, is that it, it's built on cheap money. And we don't yeah. know how long that era is going to last. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, joined by uh, Gioti Thottam of the New York Times, their opinion editor for business and economics, and also by Bethany McLean, who's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, who also did an op-ed about this topic uh, of concern around the next financial crisis maybe being linked uh, to the energy uh, sector and fracking. She did that in the New York Times recently. So, Bethany, you have it as a fragile industry, but you also say it's resilient, which is an interesting uh, partnering there. Take us into uh, how that is. So I say fracking is fragile because it's an industry that's dependent on the price of a barrel of oil a global market far beyond the control of anybody in the U.S. And in 2014, the price of a barrel of oil was falling, and Saudi Arabia refused to cut production. And many people saw this as an attempt to kill U.S. fracking companies by pushing the barrel of oil, the price of a barrel of oil so low that their already non-existent profits would become, would become even worse. And it to some degree succeeded. 150 U.S. companies went bust. Um, U.S. production skidded by a million barrels uh, over a span of time. And so it looked like um, this was the final gasp of this industry. It wasn't. And people who are bullish on the industry will say, look at how resilient it was. And that's true. And there are some forces that are keeping it resilient. For instance, uh, the application of fracking in this area known as the Permian Basin, which we long knew had been a major oil producer for a century. But everybody thought the wells were tapped out until until drillers began to apply fracking to it. And it's turned out to be incredibly prolific. People now say Texas alone may be the third largest oil producer um, 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 in the world. Another element is that new technology is making it cheaper to get a barrel of oil out of the ground. And there's an argument that that's going to reshape the financial firmament um, of the industry. But lastly, and the most important element in the resilience of fracking is that the capital hasn't gone away. Interest rates are still very low, and there's plenty of money in the form of pension funds and other giant pools of capital sloshing around looking for a place to invest. And that has kept the capital flowing into the fracking industry. And when you talk about some of the issues that are involved in this industry right now, you mentioned in your piece Chesapeake Energy as, I guess, to a degree, kind of a poster child for what could be a potential uh, problem area for fracking moving forward. Yeah, so I chose to profile Aubrey McClendon, who was the CEO of Chesapeake, because he's one of those larger-than-life characters that comes along every so often in the business world and makes that old adage that truth is stranger than fiction um, ring, ring true. And he was a CEO who was as fearless as he was, reckless, and really pioneered the capital raising in this industry, went around the world as an evangelist for the U.S. shale industry, uh, raising raising, raising money. And the Chesapeake story, Aubrey McClendon's story, ended in tragedy when he was killed in a car crash in the spring of 2016. And the Chesapeake story um, has, not, has not ended well. So one of the chapters in my book ends with somebody musing, is this, is this the, the future of this industry? It, it changes the world. But it, but it ends in tears. Um, I also profiled, though, another company called EOG Resources, which is known as the Apple of Shale. And ironically enough, it was spun off from Enron um, back before that company's infamous bankruptcy. And EOG is kind of the other end of the spectrum, the company that is ex- very admired for being very cost-conscious, very disciplined, um, very focused on, on returns to investors. And so 
it's unclear which one will be the model for the industry going forward. Are, are the concerns you have from an economic perspective, do they also play out at the state level? And I say that because of some of the relationships that some of these companies have with their states and the investment that the states are making. And and we know that state economies at times are very, uh, very strangled at this point. Could could we be seeing this even at the local level as well? Well, it's it, the, the repercussions throughout the country are enormous, not just for the price of a barrel of oil that U.S. consumers, drivers will, will pay. That's obviously incredibly important. But yes, fracking has provided an immense number of jobs, particularly in places like Texas um, and North Dakota, where the Bakken shale is. And any failures um, would have huge economic reverberations, both locally and nationally. Are there safeguards being put in place to try and prevent a major collapse uh, of the fracking uh, industry and having such a large impact uh, on the U.S. economy? Well, I don't think you can put safeguards in place. So there has been a big pressure from investors to force companies to be more profitable because investors are tired of putting their money into something that doesn't make money. And the open question for me is is this one, which is, if companies do have to be profitable, how much oil can they actually produce? What happens to the U.S. fracking revolution? Do the giant estimates of huge growth in production from the U.S. start to come down if companies have to produce? as well. And so that's one source of of discipline, which I think will be helpful, but I think also poses a risk to all of our chest beating about U.S. energy independence or even energy dominance, as as President Trump calls it. On another level, though, all of this is driven by macro issues. The availability of capital and when that dries up is something that is beyond most most people's level to predict and certainly beyond anybody's level to control. So part of the point of me writing my book was just to make people aware of this, that as we trumpet American energy independence, let's think about some of the foundation of this and how insecure it actually is so that we're also planning for the future in different ways. And Jody, I asked about uh, safeguards because obviously when you think back 10 years ago to to what we went through in 2008, a lot of people put the, uh, a good bit of the focus on the banking sector, on the lenders, and we now have we now have various safeguards in place to try and prevent at least some of what we saw in 2008. And I guess the question is, why don't we or why isn't anybody looking at this oil industry, this fracking industry moving forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. Uh, I mean, that's one of the problems with crises, right? You sort of go through a crisis you respond to it, and then usually the safeguards that you put in place are meant to prevent whatever you just went through, but not necessarily the thing that's actually going to happen next. So that's why I think it's really key to start looking around at, um, you know, those places where, you know, perhaps there is danger lurking somewhere, and we're and we're just not. Um, we're just not sure what that is or what that looks like. Um, I tend to agree with Bethany. I think with something like the oil industry, which, I mean, for decades, for almost as long as it's been around, it's gone through cycles of uh, boom and bust. And I mean, I grew up in Texas. Like, I've, I've seen it firsthand. Like, this is uh, this is how that industry works, in a sense. Um, but I think the... Uh, you know, the sort of financial part of it, the way that it's become so closely tied to the capital markets, that's something that's um, a little bit new, um, a little bit concerning. And I'd actually, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear what Bethany thinks. Um, I think, you know, we both uh, 
covered Enron uh, when that happened. And I'm wondering if, you know, just in reporting the story, if you got any of those, um, uh, that sense again that, you know, things were not quite right, things were not quite what they seemed. Bethany? So, yes and no. And it's a great question and an interesting one. Um, um, there are certainly parallels in some of the characters I cover. The Enron guys were <laughs> were also larger-than-life characters in, in many ways. And there are parallels in, in the numbers in that it was obvious looking at Enron's financial statements that something didn't make sense, although the depth of the fraud there um, only came out after the company collapsed. I think when you look at oil companies' presentations, there's also something that doesn't make sense because they show their investors um, these beautiful investor decks with um, gorgeous um, slides showing that Wells produce an 80% or a 60% internal rate of return. And then you go to the corporate level and you see that the company isn't making money. And you wonder what happened between point A and point B. But again, you know, just as in the case of Enron, you could see that the, there were problems on, on the surface. You can see that in this case, too. The fact that the industry doesn't make money, doesn't produce free cash flow is, is, is obvious to anybody who looks at the financial statements. So I don't think there's so much... Um, and I, I don't think that there's any kind of great hidden, hidden fraud going on here. Although you, that said, you never know. But um, but I but I think the problems that are 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 on the surface, um, which is ironic given that this is happening so deep underground, right? You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM One Thirty Two Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined from New York by Jyoti Thottam of the New York Times, and on the phone with Bethany McLean, contributing editor at Vanity Fair and uh, author of the. The op-ed in the New York Times, the next financial crisis lurks underground. So then, Bethany, then with, as you point out in your article, only five of the top 20 fracking companies managing to generate more cash than they spent in the first quarter of 2018, these companies have to be looking closely at their numbers as well to see what they need to change, what they need to adapt moving forward. I just had lunch with a group of people in the oil industry in Houston, so that was interesting. But part of the argument is that they are only doing what investors have demanded. In other words, investors have wanted to see growth in production at all costs. And so that's what companies have delivered. Um, and so part of this has also been companies trying to meet the pressure from Wall Street, as well as companies compensating their executives based on based on production growth. So it'll be really interesting to see how that dance plays out in, in coming years as investors sort of battle over whether they want to see companies produce profits or whether they want to see growth in the amount of oil that they're producing. You say in, in your piece that we could be looking at another version of the dot-com bubble again? Well, the reason I made that comparison is because back in the first dot-com bubble, you may recall, companies were valued based on eyeballs, based on the number of people who were looking at their site. Because in the absence of traditional measures of valuing a company like profits and cash flow, people turn to non-traditional measures. And so that same thing has applied um, with fracking companies where investors have valued them on a multiple of the acreage they own or um, on the basis of their production growth rather than looking at their cash flow or their profits. And the thing is, non-traditional measures of valuation only last until they don't. And at some point, investors generally want to see real profits and real returns, because otherwise, why are they putting their money into this industry? And how much of the money is coming from from private companies, from uh, private equity firms? 
So I got a stunning estimate that a third of the fracking that's being done in the United States today is being funded, is being done by privately backed companies, um, mainly private equity backed. So it's been a huge, um, the, the amount of money coming in from private equity has been enormous and has really uh, reshaped this industry. Jody, this is uh, this is an incredibly important story to tell and a great job by, by you folks at the New York Times to bring it forward because this is going to be, a, it seems like a continuing story in the weeks and months to come to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And I think also it's important, you know, for people who care about fracking. uh, I mean, of course, um, there are many environmental concerns, but I think for, you know, perhaps even people who are okay with the environmental risks, who see it as a source of jobs and economic growth, I think uh, it's worth looking at it in a different way in the way that this piece does. How much pushback, Bethany, has there been from environmental organizations because of some of the concerns out there? So I I was surprised. Um, I thought I might get pushback on my book because it is explicitly not about the environmental issues. It is a narrow uh, mini book, and so there's only room to cover so much. But as it turns out, many environmentalists are also curious about the financial side of the business and don't know it as well. So I think people have been interested rather than um, rather than upset. And the industry, on the other hand, I have not had anybody argue with me about the lack of cash flow in the industry. The primary argument is that that's going to change. And that we'll see. They have a flat out belief that they're going to start to see more profits coming in the years to come. They do. It's an amazing story. Bethany, great job. Thank you very much for your time today. Jody, great talking with you again. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bethany McLean, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, author of the book Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Uh, she, uh, the uh, author of the op-ed that we have been speaking about in the New York Times called The Next Financial Crisis Lurks Underground. And many thanks to her and to Gioti Tatum, who is a New York Times opinion editor for business and economics. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 